Good evening. We're a whole different bunch of people than we were yesterday at this time. It's a I, I'm not sure how it feels for you, but I, when I feel into this room and see the room, it's, uh, you know, and feel into our presence here. It's, a lot has transpired and, and shifted and there's been a lot of beautiful slowing down and practice and uh, attention. So uh, we bow to you. <clears throat> and it was just last night that we arrived here. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, so we're here for this New Year's retreat. And, and last night we began attending to what we were letting go of through different, in different ways. One being the phone ceremony very big ceremony of, of letting go, of renunciation, of um, these devices, these phones that have become our eyes and ears and weather reports and cameras and uh, uh, calendars, all the things. So that's a very big letting go. Also, we let go into the form, into this schedule uh, rather than just uh, needing to decide what am I going to do next and what, what do I want, where should I go, what should I, yeah, all the doing. We let go into the, the container, the form, the support of the schedule. Uh, we also let go into silence let go of some of the external words, um, you know, and, and when, we, when we are engaging in speaking, uh, we're engaging with mindfulness and uh, care uh, in, in a, as speech as part of our practice. <clears throat> and so all of this letting go, beginning to see how it creates a spaces for inviting in, for intentions. Uh, what do we want to cultivate and develop in ourselves, in relationship for our world, with our world? So I want to speak uh, more about that tonight, about intentions. And... Um, I, I, w I want to give uh, a little a little context, very, very brief, selective summary to kind of uh, make sure we're all kind of uh, uh, on, a, on a, the, the same place as we move forward to talk about wise intention. <clears throat> in, our, in our chant that we've been doing, Part of it has been um, offering homage, homage to the Buddha, or and also to take refuge in the Buddha, and the Dhamma and the Sangha, and uh, so I just want to mention <clears throat> that this word Buddha 
is a like an honorific title that means awakened one. It's not actually uh, a person's name. We, it sort of feels like that. It's like the Buddha. What do you mean? Uh, but the what we refer to as the Buddha, there's many awakened beings, many Buddhas through time, and in particularly, we're following the teachings and the path of uh, this Buddha who's born, who is named Siddhartha Gotama. And so, as you know, Buddha is not a, a god or a deity, but as I said earlier today, a dude like us, a <laughs> um, person like us. And in many ways like us, uh, someone seeking meaning, seeking connection, and seeking peace, which I, th I think we're all, we're all down for that, right? Uh, and so, as you may know, maybe not, uh, this man, Siddhartha Gautama, had been raised in great comfort. Um, some tellings refer to um, him like a prince. Uh, his father w wasn't a king, but more like a... Um, like a, a leader of the community, and quite wealthy, like a head of the community. And uh, so he was raised in a way, it's a longer backstory to it, but um, with a lot of comfort and pursuit of pleasures and um, safety, containment, like a little walled compound community and very protected. <clears throat> Um, there came a time in his life, quite, quite further on, around the age of 29, where he left that, his home and family, in pursuit, the, the seeking of an end to suffering. This came about because he eventually came to see aging, sickness, and death. He'd been quite protected from seeing unpleasant things. And then, um, you know, that can only go on so long before you realize you yourself are aging or getting sick and, and seeing that around you and also seeing and experiencing death. Uh, <clears throat> and he also saw a fourth person who was a renunciate, who was uh, and reportedly looked quite peaceful, um, and so eventually decided to realize that he too was going to age, get sick, and die. And you know the the question we all have of like when we're seven and seventeen and twenty-seven, you know, over the years of what's it all about, what's the purpose, what's the meaning, what, what is real happiness, you know, all these, these quests that we all have. <clears throat> so he, he left this sheltered life and he went and studied and practiced with very well-renowned teachers of the time. And 
for many years, and he reportedly accomplished or um, the word mastered is in my mind, and I'm trying to find another word for it because it's, it's not really the word I want to use, but he, he exceeded at accomplishing these teachings and to such an extent that he was asked in one case to uh, become the teacher and uh, lead the communities uh, and lead these teachings. But he found that even though they brought great concentration, they didn't bring an end to suffering. Uh, so for six years he practiced very extreme, harsh austerities and self-mortification in the forests of northern India, uh, barely eating, uh, not, not sleeping, like just not taking care of this, this being, really harsh. Uh, to such an extent that he almost died from starvation and exhaustion. Um, and so, despite almost dying, despite his extreme determination and effort, he realized that these practices were creating more suffering and that he would likely die before uh, realizing freedom, liberation, the ending of suffering. So then uh, after being offered and allowing himself to receive some nourishment and, and taking care of his body, memory naturally arose of a time when he was a boy sitting under the shade of the rose apple tree you could maybe uh, let yourself picture this. It was uh, apparently an annual festival where his father, the head of the community, would open the festival, the festival <coughs> reportedly being the first plowing of the field and the fields. And so the whole community came and would bring food, and there'd be all kinds of celebration and joy, a real it, I just can kind of picture that joy and the, I mean, it's been a while since we've had those kind of big gatherings, but of the whole, you can imagine the whole community coming out and bringing food and maybe there's music or dancing, I'm not sure what else, as they plow the fields. So we could maybe, um, you know, sense that there was like everybody, it, a familiarity, it's an annual festival, we would know everyone in the community. It's a comfortable temperature, sitting in the shade under the tree. Lots of activity nearby, but he's kind of secluded, you know, away from the noise and the activity, and um, has found this place secluded, sitting under the tree, um, where he, as a child, he just naturally. slipped into, came into this 
serene, calm, abiding, pleasant, and a naturally absorbed state of mind arose. Nowhere to be, nothing to do, and no one to become. Just chilling. And maybe you can recall a time or a place where you've had a taste of that, a taste of that natural ease, maybe in nature, maybe somewhere that feels safe or comfortable for you, maybe as a child, where there's presence, awakeness, but nothing else needed, a natural abiding, a natural gathering, composure, collectedness. And this, so remember, he'd been studying, like practicing so, with so much striving that he almost died. How's that going for you today? Is anybody there? You're like really working hard. <laughs> and, uh, and then he, he took some nourishment and then this memory arose of like, remember that time where he he just came into a state of concentration without that effort and striving, natural abiding, so calm and peaceful, joy, there's joy in there. This, and so this memory um, inspired Siddhartha Gotama, as I hope it inspires you, that uh, as, it's, as it's recalled on the full moon night in May just before his 35th birthday, he, Siddhartha sat comfortably with great stillness, deep and wide awareness under the fig tree that's now known as the Bodhi tree. Bodhi meaning uh, the awakened one. Uh, and, and he began practicing mindfulness of breath and entered that same state of absorption that he'd experienced as a boy. And um, according to our historical accounts, by dawn he had realized what we commonly refer to now as the Four Noble Truths and the ending of suffering of dukkha. I'll say more about that in a moment. And became what we now refer to as the Buddha or the Awakened One, an Awakened One. Eventually he was convinced to teach and to share what he experienced. And when he was asked what it is he teaches, he said it this way, I teach dukkha, its origin, its cessation, and the path to its cessation. That's all I teach. Meaning, um, I teach suffering, its origin, its cause, its cessation, its ending, and the way, the path to its ending. 
<clears throat> so a little poly nerd sidebar here. <laughs> this this term, which hope, I hope will be helpful to us to maybe relate to this term, the Four Noble Truths, in a little bit of a different way, perhaps. Uh, so this term in Pali, Arya Sachani, um, the, the second part of that phrase, Satcha, is what's translated here as truth. But it also means, which I like a lot, that which is in accord with reality. Isn't that sweet? Like truth, it's like, it's the truth, is like, it's actually that which is in accord, in harmony with reality. Ooh! So good! So it's these four true realities that the Buddha came to know directly on his night of awakening. And apparently, uh, Pali scholars say that this term Arya was later perhaps added to um, translations of the Four Truths. Arya is what is, we call noble, is translated as noble, the Four Noble Truths. But no, noble can also <coughs> be translated as valuable, precious. Reminds me of goblins and Schmiegel there, precious, but precious. But um, yeah, precious, valuable. It's a, it's a little more juicy, a little more approachable than noble truths. Um, for me, anyways, and I hope for you. So uh, Paul Williams, a professor and scholar of Buddhist studies, said that these aryas um, are the noble ones or those who have attained the fruits of the path. Those who have attained freedom. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Williams goes on to say that this phrase then, Arya Satcha, might be better translated as the nobilizing truths or the truths of the noble one, the Buddha. Uh, so when we use that shorthand, Four Noble Truths, you know, let it touch you, <laughs> touch your heart. What does it mean? It's not just like some list, but it's, um, it's a statement of how things were seen by the Buddha and how we can know things as they really are. And conversely, when we do not see things this way and we act accordingly, not seeing clearly, we suffer. Okay, so here are these Four Noble Truths. These, um, here are these valuable, precious truths in accord with reality. It's a little longer to say, but it's so sweet. <laughs> Hmm. So the first, ennobling or nobilizing in accord with reality truth, is that part of this life experience for all us 
humans, for all beings, part of it includes suffering. Aging, sickness, death, the loss of what is wanted, what is beloved, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get what we want, losing what we what we want to keep and not being able to get what we want. He didn't say all of life is suffering, life is suffering, <laughs> but uh, part of this life includes these losses and not being able to control life in the way we want. And even things that are beloved and precious and joyful and delightful are impermanent. We can't keep what we want. So in that way, even though there's joy in life, it um, can't be clung to. It is clung to, but this leads to suffering which is the second, in brief, noble truth, uh, the, the origin of suffering. So he said, I teach suffering and its origin. The origin is craving. In Pali, this is tanha, which means thirst. It's that, you can imagine being in a parched desert, that thirst, that longing, it, can be very strong, <clears throat> but it goes on. It is that craving or thirst which leads to re-becoming. <laughs> because it, it keeps creating me that wants and that gets and doesn't get, and it's re-becoming constantly. It goes on accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for becoming, craving for disbecoming. So this includes the, the craving to not be, to um, not be living, is, is uh, part of this. So it's, it's the the, the clinging, the craving leads to clinging, which leads to re-becoming accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. The third noble truth, now I find it really hard to just say noble truth, because <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, it's so much juicier than that. This third noble truth is um, the cessation of suffering. So if something has a cause that causes it to arise, an origin, if we take away the origin, cessation can be known, stopping, ending can be known. So it said it's the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving, the giving up and relinquishing of it freedom from it, non-reliance on it. And the fourth is the way, the middle path, the Eightfold Noble Path, the way, the practice, 
um, that leads to the cessation, the ending of suffering. This noble eightfold path, this middle path between the extremes of following all the delights of his youth and pleasure, which did not bring, you know, you get all the, we get the things. We're still not happy because there's a better thing. If there's, you know, you know. <laughs> and uh, that extreme and then the extreme of almost dying from so much striving and self-mortification and then finding the middle path. The kindness, the presence, the ease, which provides the ability to meet reality as it is. And uh, this middle path includes wise view, wise intention, wise speech and action and livelihood, right or wise effort, mindfulness and concentration. As, as, uh, uh, maybe a, a more memorable or more accessible way to recall these four precious truths in accord with reality is um, that the Buddha was often compared to a, a healer or a physician. And uh, so if we're feeling unwell, we, we, we have some, some ailment and we go to our health practitioner of choice <laughs> and uh, they offer the diagnosis that, that of there's suffering. So in the, this case, the first noble truth is the diagnosis, there is suffering. And the suffering, this, there's dukkha. And then there is a cause, meaning, um, yeah, there, there, you know, this is what's giving rise to it, and that is the clinging. And the third noble truth is the prognosis. Your healer, your health practitioner says, the prognosis is good. We've got really good news for you. Um, that there is a cure. That's so exciting. Wow, we don't get that kind of good news all the time. This is good news. Allow yourself to feel that. And then there's a prescription. The path, the way to achieve this release from suffering. You need to get some, like, prescription pads. <laughs> like, <laughs> If you have access to that, ask your doctor. No, they would never do that. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Uh, okay, so this middle path, this way, this prescription, it, it can also be, uh, is sometimes referred to in three groupings. There's eight elements, and then they, they're grouped in these three groupings. One of the groupings... Um, we began yesterday, we began our retreat with this, uh, it's called sila, um, ethics, 
we began with that, with our precepts, with our um, intentions uh, to take care of each other, to create this container together. This is um, part of that. It also, wise speech and wise action and livelihood are also um, part of this ethical grouping of the path. <clears throat> and so tonight I want to talk about another one of the groupings on the path, which is the wisdom grouping of the Eightfold Path. Is it, are we good? <laughs> it's a lot, so just, um, you can stop me if it's like, what, what, can you back up? Um, so the wisdom grouping of the Middle Path, which only includes two things, only. The first is wise view. And um, wise here is the word sama, which means thoroughly, to see thoroughly. We could think of it as skillfully, wise, skillful. And we just reviewed it. The wise view is the understanding of the four valuable, precious truths that are in accord with, with reality. That's wise view is, is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. <clears throat> More than that, <laughs> those Four Noble Truths are not just to be known, like a list, but the, fir the First Noble Truth is to be comprehended, to understand dukkha, suffering, the second noble truth is to be abandoned. Clinging, it's not just to be known, it's to be abandoned. The third, the ending of suffering, is to be directly experienced. Ping. This is so important. To know, recognize in yourself, for yourself, it's happening all the time. Are you noticing when there's no clinging? When you just, there's a peaceful abiding, or there's just a step, or there's just a breath, there's just a heartfelt wish, may you be safe, may you be peaceful, may I be well. These are moments to be directly experienced and understood as an ending of suffering there. There's no, to recognize when there's no suffering. And then the fourth is to be developed, the path. So that's wise view, first part of this wisdom grouping. The second is wise intention. Samasankapa. Wise intention. We today we practice two parts of this: um, non-harm and non-ill will in our metta and karuna practice that we did this afternoon. That guided meditation where we were using phrases or intention and cultivating, inclining the heart into this care and well wishes and friendliness. 
So that is two parts of this wise intention, metta and karuna, or phrased in its opposite, um, non-harm and non-ill will. The third aspect of wise intention is renunciation. Yeah, so when you hear this word renunciation, what, what comes up for you? <laughs> What's your relationship with renunciation? It's not, um, in, tra- in its translation into English, it's not so appealing. Uh, some of the synonyms and definitions of renunciation are resignation, like uh, <laughs> surrender, rejection, self-denial, uh, on and on. So, um, it, you know, it, for, for some of us, maybe many of us, it has um, this flavor of you know, it, it, even earlier I said that uh, when the Buddha was 29, he, be, he saw a renunciate and became a renunciate. He left home, left all that pleasure, he left all of the good stuff, all the comforts, he left his family, you know, just a, a robe and an uh, alms bowl and just went out onto this quest. Like, that's renunciate. And... Um, and yet, you know, so we may think of it in this way that is like r- really harsh and maybe unappealing. Um, and yet the suttas, the, the teachings, refer to it as the bliss of renunciation. So there's something not connecting here with maybe our view of renunciation and what they're saying it's like blissful, the bliss of renunciation. Nakama Sukha, it's like beautiful. Uh, Yeah. So I'd like to share this little teaching that I'm I'm really digging these days, uh, a sutta um, from someone we may be able to relate to. I can, maybe you can, uh, somebody named Tapusa. <clears throat> for those that like to take notes and write down the sutta, it's from the Anguttara Nikaya 9.41. And um, so the Buddha had gone on his alms round and uh, received some food and nourishment from the community, the lay people, and then went to the woods, the forest, to practice. And this householder, lay person named Tapusa, came to... Ananda, who is um, the Buddha's close attendant and cousin and uh, um, uh, one of the disciples, the closest disciples of the Buddha at the time. So Tapusa comes to Ananda to ask him this question, and Ananda wisely said, this requires a visit to the Buddha, um, to get an answer directly from from him, so together they went, paid their respects, their bows, and asked the question. Actually, Ananda re- re- related the question. He says it this way: Tapusa, the householder here, has said to me, "Venerable Ananda, sir, 
We are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in sensuality, delighting in sensuality, enjoying sensuality, rejoicing in it, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. <laughs> Yet I have heard that in this doctrine and discipline, these teachings, the hearts of the very young monks and nuns leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast and firm, seeing it as peace. And uh, Tapusa goes on and says, so right here, this issue of renunciation is where the doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people. <laughs> just name it. He's like, Buddha, this just doesn't fit for us peoples. And the Buddha replies, so it is, Ananda. So it is. Even I myself, the Buddha is saying, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation. It didn't grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So the thought occurred to me, what is the cause? What is the reason why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation? doesn't grow steadfast, firm, confident, seeing it as peace. So we might ask ourselves, what is our relationship with this renunciation? Does, does your heart leap up? <laughs> Maybe some parts of it. Like some parts of that, I'm like, yeah, I like to go on retreat. Thank you very much. Um, and yet, not, not completely. <laughs> I still want my nice pillow. I didn't bring my pillow, but there is a good one here. But, you know, maybe I want my, my mug, my tea, uh, my quiet house, my comfortable bed. Uh, we can go on and on. Uh, so, you know, there may be some parts of renunciation that we leap up at, that we feel confident and steadfast in, and maybe other parts, eh, not so much. <clears throat> so the Buddha goes on. Then the th he, he inquired into it, well, what is the cause? And then the thought occurred to, to him, I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. So... I'd like to ask you, what are the drawbacks of sensual pleasure? Are there any? Anybody have a thought? What's a drawback of sensual pleasure? Yes. Clinging. Yes. So, so it's fine, but if you crave it, then that's an issue. Yeah, if, it, if it's... Yeah, so a drawback of a sensual pleasure is that it, it can lead to clinging, to craving, because it's like pleasant. <laughs> it's like, it's pleasant. We want more. Yeah. 
What else? Impermanence. Oh, yeah. Who said, who said that? Okay. Hey, Jen. <laughs> yeah, say, say more. Um, yes, because um, it, it can be sort of an, an addiction. Um, sensual pleasure in itself leads to the clinging that's already been mentioned, but then the falling off the cliff is when it ends because all things end. Right. And come back and then come back. So yeah. impermanence. Impermanence, thank you. Yes. And the fear, fear of losing those pleasures. Right, yes, yes. The fear of losing those pleasures. I think there was another hand, anything else? Yeah? Yeah. It's not in accord with reality. <laughs> <laughs> yes, not in accord with reality. Uh huh. So, um, so the Buddha said, you know, I haven't understood the reward of renunciation, familiarized myself with it. So we have an opportunity here to familiarize ourselves with the reward of the renunciation and the drawbacks of sensual pleasure. We, we've already relinquished and renunciated quite a bit in the form here, uh, but we may still be <coughs> pursuing and... and, and um, following, wanting these sensual pleasures. And so we have this opportunity to look at, well, what's the drawback with that? Check it out. Yeah? I, I'm having a lot of trouble with the line here. I mean, is sensual pleasure like having a shelter? Is sensual pleasure having something to eat? You know, is no. sensual pleasure having... No, those are called... Um, uh, um, uh, requisites, those are requisites which are not considered, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, like the, th the things I was talking about earlier was like, oh, there's brownies, I should have five and take another one back to my room for later. And the, you know, the, or the, um, I, I wish I'd brought my, my special whatever thing, you know, th that kind of clinging. The, in terms of like, shelter and food and health, like medicine, um, and there's another one. These are our renunciate, or our, our um, requisites, just the basic requis requisites, so. Um, okay, so to also familiarize ourselves with the reward of renunciation, like what What have we noticed here in letting go of our phones, maybe? In letting go of speaking? And letting go of like doing what I want when I want it? And we're following the rhythm of the schedule. Have we noticed? Yeah, so just check that out for yourself. What, what do we notice there? Let me just check the time. <clears throat> Um, so the Buddha is saying he inquired into this for himself to, and 
to see are there drawbacks, what are the drawbacks, and to really um, pursue that theme and to be really become familiar with the rewards of renunciation. So reflect on that, check that out. What are the rewards? Is there more calming, more attention with how things are in accord with reality when we let go of some of the grasping? Check it out. So it, it doesn't work <laughs> to force ourselves to renunciate. Rather, we want to become, like the Buddha said, deeply curious. Like, oh, what, what, what is the why? You know, he describes it so well. I'm going to familiarize myself with that. I'm going to check that out. Why is that? Um, what are the drawbacks? What is the reward? Because when we try to let go of something, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't have that, I shouldn't want this, we've already got our hands on it and we're pushing it away, shouldn't, it is the same thing as clinging. It's the same thing, right? And so rather than pushing anything away, trying to let go of something, which means pushing, same as clinging, we're, we're, we're all up in it, is instead to be curious and see what are the ways that holding on is happening? What does wanting feel like? So this is a, a little story. It's very mundane, but I think it's helpful because it's happening all the time in these mundane ways and to just be real curious about it. Uh, some of you have heard this before. Uh, th so this is the bread story. <laughs> oh, the bread story again. <laughs> this happened on uh, the three-month retreat at IMS and uh, a fair ways into the retreat. So there was a quite a relative degree of slowing down and calm and attention and curiosity and kindness. You know, the, yes. As well as nonsense and chaos and, you know, judging mind and all the other bits, but a relative amount of settling and vipassana. <clears throat> At IMS, they at that time anyways, they bake fresh bread every day. The smell of that bread permeates all of the air. Every day it's a different special delight, a different flavor. It's not just bread. And one particular day, this song, you know, it's posted, but it was vanilla cardamom bread. It was like, I can't, oh. And I had I, taken the eight precepts and was n n not eating um, the evening meal and uh, was uh, also not eating bread at that time. <laughs> oh, I wanted that bread. 
So I took it as a practice, and I went into the dining hall and smelled the bread, and and then I I just watched other people enjoying the bread, and that was lovely and delightful. I really did feel pleasure and happiness, mudita. It's that resonant joy of the joy of others, and so I that brought quite a bit of peace just watching them enjoy the bread. But I still wanted the bread. And I was so curious, I was like, where is this wanting? Because the mind wasn't so hooked on it anymore, because I was, felt pretty happy watching them enjoy, enjoy it. But there was still, I was just like, what? where is this wanting? And I was just feeling the sensations in the body. There wasn't like a big knot in the stomach or a lot of, a lot of like contraction or gripping. I was so curious. My body was relatively relaxed and calm and just kind of moving attention through the body and then I found just in this muscle, as I'm right-handed, this little muscle was just a little contraction because it was getting ready to get the bread. Get this, uh, this has to contract to lift that hand to get the bread. <laughs> that was so awesome. And, and then just as awareness felt that sensation, it, of course, it changed, released. It, 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 it let, letting go happened. So you can see this is a very pretty silly and, as I said, mundane example, but it's, check it out, because in this heart-body-mind, it's happening all the time. <laughs> the reaching without even knowing there's an intention to get, it's just like, yep, yep. <laughs> uh, I sometimes notice this when I'm driving, there's a little moment that happened before of boredom or aversion or restlessness or something and the hand is already reaching for the radio. Like, we didn't even decide to turn on the radio, what's up? But it's just like, there was some, oh! It, like the, the reaching or pushing is happening all the time. <clears throat> So letting go is, again, not pushing something away, but it's the absence of clinging. It, yeah. It happens when we see clearly how we're holding on. So it could be a, a thought, some, someone a little bit annoying or something, someone that you want comes into awareness and then how do we hold on to that? We're like, yeah, they do, they are, yeah, they were, yeah, 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 I am. We're holding on, that there's the, so to see what ways are we holding on? Yeah, there's um, some groove that arises in the mind and then it, everything is of the nature to arise and pass. It, it already, that thought already came and went, but we, we 
pick it up or bite the hook, as someone was saying earlier. Okay. Uh, so here's a, um, another one of the ways the Buddha practiced with this. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya 19. He says, practitioners, monks, bhikkhus, students, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, the thought occurred to me, why don't I keep dividing my thoughts into two sorts? So, I made thinking imbued with sensuality, thinking imbued with ill will, and thinking imbued with harmfulness, one sort or one pile, one, one category. And then thinking imbued with renunciation, with non-ill will, with harmlessness, another sort. And as I remained thus heedful, ardent, resolute, thinking imbued with sensuality and sometimes ill will or harmfulness arose in me. And I discerned that this thinking imbued with, with desire, with sensuality, or with ill will or harmful thoughts has arisen in me. And that leads to my affliction. Or to the affliction of others. Or to the affliction of both. It obstructs, it gets in the way of discernment, of clear seeing. It promotes vexation. Vexation. (laughs) And it does not lead to unbinding, to freedom, to liberation. He goes on, as I noticed that it leads to my affliction, it subsided. As I noticed it leads to the affliction of others, it subsided. As I noticed, it leads to the affliction of both myself and others, it subsided. As I noticed, or as noticing happened, that it obstructs discernment, clear seeing, it, obst- it promotes vexation, and does not lead to unbinding, it subsided. So whenever thinking imbued with sensuality, ill will, or harmfulness had arisen, I simply abandoned it, dispelled it, wiped it out of existence. That part, it sounds a little bit like uh, pushing, but you know the first part where he's describing it is like, when I saw that it leads to my affliction, letting go happened. When I saw that it leads to the affliction, suffering of others, Letting go happened. Let's have a few minutes of silence, and then we'll end with a poem.
This poem was written uh, in 2020, in the uh, beginning of the pandemic, and it's called Pandemic by Lynn Ungar. It's a poem uh, to me, it resonates with what we're talking about here, renunciation and metta or non non-ill will, non-harm. And uh, it speaks to our practice here of what we've let go of to show up here to cultivate, making space to cultivate what is skillful onward leading. Pandemic, Lynn Ungar. What if you thought of it as the Jews consider the Sabbath the most sacred of times? Cease from travel. Cease from buying and selling. Give up just for now on trying to make the world different than it is. Sing. Pray. Touch those to whom you commit your life. Center down. And when your body has become still, reach out with your heart. Know that we are all connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. You could hardly deny it now. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Surely that has become clear. Reach out your heart. Reach out your words. Reach out all the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, so long as we all shall live. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.